Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. This show is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awake or awakening people to check out the hundreds of interviews already done and various other things on the site. Go to batgap.com. There's a donate button there if you'd like to support our efforts. My guest today is Peter Fenner. I've had the pleasure of listening to Peter's book, Radiant Mind, for the last week and got through pretty much the whole thing. And it's funny, Peter, as, as I'll explain who you are in a minute, but it's funny as I was listening to the book, I really felt like we were brothers from another mother in a sense because, uh, I don't know if you've heard that expression, but I felt such a resonance with everything you were saying, didn't really have much to disagree with, which doesn't always happen. Sometimes when I listen to teachers you know, read their books, I'm a little critical and say, eh, I think that point's a little off or whatever, to my own understanding. But I just felt a lot of resonance with what you were saying and it's ironic in a way because we come from very different traditions. You know, you're from a Buddhist tradition, I have more of a Hindu tradition background, although I don't know if you consider yourself a Buddhist, but I don't consider myself a Hindu. But in any case, I could have written the book myself in a sense if I were as good a writer because of what you're saying. And, and just about everything you said for me was like a springboard to an interesting discussion, but for the most part I was, in fact not at all, was I taking notes. I was cutting the grass, riding my bicycle, doing all the things I usually do, and that's how I managed to listen to all this stuff. But I have a feeling that we're just going to hit it off and have a great conversation and um, cover all kinds of ground. And as we've been doing recently, this is a call-in, uh, not a call-in, it's, it's live stream show, and if people listening live go to the upcoming interviews page under future interviews on batgap.com and then scroll down they'll see a form where they can submit questions that I will probably ask during the interview. So let me just backtrack a little bit and read a little bit of your bio here. So Peter is he's in Australia at the moment as we speak. He's a leader in the Western adaptation of Buddhist wisdom. He's a pioneer in the new field of non-dual psychotherapy. He was a celibate monk in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions for nine years. He has a PhD in the philosophical psychology of Mahayana Buddhism and has held teaching positions at universities in Australia and the U.S. He's taught workshops at Naropa Institute, excuse me, Naropa University, the California Institute for Integral Studies, Omega Institute and other centers, and given invited presentations at JFK University, Saybrook College, Stanford Medical School, Columbia University, and internationally. Um, I'll just read this one last paragraph. Peter's way of teaching is known for its dynamic and engaging deconstruction of all fixed frames of reference that block entry to unconditioned awareness and for the purity and depth of natural, uncontrived silence that emerges in his work. He also has a unique capacity for sharing the skills and states of his transmission in a way that others can easily understand and begin to replicate in the non-dual transmission. Um, and if I had to summarize you, Peter, um, I would say, having listened to that book and also some other interviews and stuff you did, that um, I found that there was a great deal of honesty and I guess I could use the word practicality, but there's something realistic about the way you talk about spirituality. A lot of times people, I feel, fail to distinguish between intellectual understanding and direct experience and, and they end up getting you know, immersing themselves in books and teachings and getting very conversant with an intellectual understanding and then beginning to espouse that and, you know, talk about it on perhaps even as a teacher or on chat groups and so on. But they don't realize that what they are really alluding to with their understanding is an experience that can be quite profoundly different and more rich 
than any sort of intellectual understanding could be. And I really got the sense as I was listening to you that you had a realistic understanding of that distinction and also a realistic appreciation of the vast range of possibilities for human spiritual evolution. A sense that it can really go very far, far more than many people realize. Those are two points that resonate with me a lot. I appreciate that uh, introduction, Rick, very much. Thank mm -hmm. you. Sure. Yeah, well, the realism for me is uh, pretty important. And uh, I mean, the way to be realistic is just to watch how we are evolving ourselves and uh, like take this as the benchmark that uh, not being seduced by other people's stories, other people's paths, not by the literature, which a lot of it, um, I mean, people are living into ideals and fantasies. I think if we accept that, that we have that capacity to fantasize, I mean, we think it would be just so great if we could achieve that state of beyond suffering as quickly as possible. And so many people that I share with in different ways, they're asking, you know, is that, is that possible? in that in this life you know can i really achieve that and you know maybe maybe not but historically it was still a pretty rare occurrence to achieve in this life that state of just being in bliss consciousness no matter what's happening because life can throw at us so many difficult different and difficult situations yeah I have kind of what I might call the crucifixion test. It's easy to be mm. in bliss consciousness under ideal circumstances, perhaps, but what if you were, find yourself in Christ's circumstances? <clears throat> would, you know, did he remain in bliss consciousness? I would like to think he, he actually did, given the maturity of his spiritual evolution, but I don't know. And that might seem totally contradictory, because how could somebody be in bliss consciousness when they're being crucified? But perhaps you can, you can probably answer that question and elaborate a little bit on what we mean by bliss consciousness. But in your own case, I know you, you were talking about when you had a ruptured disc in your spine or something, and you were in excruciating pain. And you know you readily admitted that there was no question of bliss consciousness at that point. You know it was pretty much blotto by right. by the pain. And you had people saying to you, "Oh, Peter, you know that there's no person to whom this is happening." And you know that's not very helpful advice under such circumstances. So we kind of have to be realistic with whatever actual stage of development we may have reached. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how I see it is that when we've got an opportunity to do the profound work of resting in pure awareness, which sometimes is bliss consciousness, that's interesting. For me, it's not always accompanied by sourceless bliss. Sometimes it's there. Like it's, it's you saying, well, what name can I put on this? Something is happening. Uh, there's some really subtle, like affective dimension well, the only word I can put on it is bliss, but it's not what I call somatic bliss because it's not coming from a source. If I say, okay, so where's the source of it? It's not coming from like some exquisite music. It's not by being touched in a particular way. It just does not have a source, the same as non-dual awareness. Where is it coming from? Nowhere and everywhere. So when we have that opportunity, yeah, we just take it. For me, that's the practice, that when it arises, just uh, enjoying it in a way, even though it's unconditioned, 
we're conditioning the mind streams conditioned we're conditioning ourselves to have more of this sure so that yeah so that's the big thing and then when it's not here um, it's not here and we can appreciate that it's this uh, really weird thing that uh, we can't lose it because there's nothing to lose we can even think that sometimes that takes us straight back into it uh, what is it that I've lost oh wow yeah I, you can't lose this and then we're back here sometimes we think that thought and it doesn't sort of dig deep enough we think ah but you can't lose this but it doesn't get into it because the conditioning's got its own power. Yeah. Um, some people don't like the talk of progressive stages of development of bliss or anything else. Uh, you know, they say, well, you know, reality is what it is. How can how can it be progressive? But um, I would <clears throat> respond that you know it is what it is. Fine, but our experience of it it can be quite a different matter. And that can be progressive, that can evolve and mature and, and develop and so on. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree to that? Yeah, so for example, if you take something like depth, mm -hmm. which is a dimension of unconditioned awareness that I talk about, when we're here, there's no depth to it. There's no directionality, there's no superficiality, there's no depth. We can't like dig into it more because it's non-dual, so it's beyond those dualistic structures. But there is a sense that we can integrate this, which has no depth, more deeply into our conditioned being. In other words, we can, over the, you know, let's say five or ten years after working with this, we can be present to difficult circumstances, stuff that's, you know, triggering emotions, physical pain, and it's not producing a perturbation. We're yeah. still fully, richly immersed in this. There's a Vedic metaphor in which they, you know, they talk about conditioning. They say that a deeply conditioned nervous system, very kind of deeply ingrained, habituated nervous system is like stone. And you try to make a mark in the stone, it's a little hard to make the mark. In other words, experience isn't very deep, but whatever mark you do make stays in the stone. And mm -hmm. then a less conditioned nervous system is more like sand. You can actually make a deeper mark, deeper experience, but it gets washed away a little bit faster. And yeah, yeah. a less conditioned nervous system is like water, you know, real deep mark, right. but it just it disappears. And the least conditioned is more like air. You know, you can just, <laughs> any depth right. of, of impression, and yet there's no lasting impression. So you hear people talk about, and you can elaborate, that, you know, they might have some experience, and it has some deep impact, and a minute later, they're back to equilibrium. Mm. No, I like that metaphor. Yeah. I haven't heard it before. Yeah, that's great. Lovely. And wouldn't you say, I mean, having been a practitioner for probably decades now of whatever you've been practicing, that if you look back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you know, there has been a steady progression in terms of the, the depth or clarity of your experience and also the stability of it in terms of its not being perturbable. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the type of time frame to look at things in as well. You know, one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and so on. Because within that, 
you know, we can be confronted by stuff that's happening, death of a loved one or just stuff that's, you know, really complex for us to be dealing with. So anything shorter than sort of six months is a bit deceptive. So someone to begin and think, okay, so like where am I going to be in six months? Great. That's it. The main point is that whatever the experience is, we're always building a resource if we're working with this, even though life over a shorter time might be more challenging just yeah. because of the circumstances. Yeah, but sure, over that longer term, for sure, that there's a uh, stabilizing and I think particularly a more ready access to this. You don't have to go through all the complexities because we're talking about making the journey from being identified with some conditioning, let's say caught up in some conditioning, attraction and aversion, through to here, and we're talking about making the journey thousands and thousands of times over decades. That's how it happens. Yeah. Thousands of times we make it. We go to a teaching and you're in and out of it maybe 20, 30, 40 times. You know, resting in it for five minutes, then caught, caught up in some belief system and then returning to it. So it's just the more times we're making the journey, the easier it is and the more automatic and effortless it becomes. I'll give you another metaphor. In, in India, they used to dye cloth, and maybe they still do, by dipping cloth in colored dye and then taking it out and bleaching it in the sun. And it would lose most of its color, but to a certain extent it would be retain the color. And then they'd dip it again and then bleach it again and dip it and bleach it and keep doing that until eventually it became color fast. It wouldn't lose its color mm. even in the bright mm. sunlight no matter how long you left it there. So I think it's just a metaphor to illustrate what you're just saying. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And the reason I'm dwelling on this point to start out with is that, you know, as I said, I, I like the fact that you seem to speak from your own experience and um, not just sort of go off into intellectual abstractions that don't pertain to your experience and, and this has been my experience over the decades, you know, the kind of thing you're just describing, the, the progressive development. And I'm always a little puzzled when I hear people saying, give up the search or you don't need to do anything because you're already enlightened and, you know, stuff like that. And I just think they're just mm. kind of in dreamland they're, or maybe they, they know something I don't know, but it doesn't, that's not the way my experience has been. Right. Yeah, what happens for me often when people are sharing like that, I think, are you telling me something? Or it seems to me that you're telling me something. And if, you, if that's the intention, you're telling me something, it's conceptual, it's content. It's not what this is, which is non-conceptual awareness. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, I think we've probably cl clarified that point enough that you know, what we're discussing here and what, what spirituality in general is really all about is non-conceptual. The conceptual is kind of like the icing on the cake, and, and but but the important thing is the actual experience. I mean, you can you know you can stand out on the sidewalk and read the menu uh, at a restaurant and get a concept of what it might be like to eat there, but that's a far cry from actually going in and eating, as far as deriving any kind of enjoyment or nutrition is concerned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. So. Um, as I said, I, I really enjoyed your book, Radiant Mind, and um, I see someone sent in some questions about it, which I'll ask, but um, why don't you give us a kind of a, let's, let's sort of walk us through some of the main points of your book as they come to your mind, and we'll just kind of stop and discuss these points as we go along. 
Okay. Well, the book and what I offer generally is what's sometimes called resu the result level approach. So I sort of assume uh, at the beginning that there's nothing that we need to do. We can be here without needing to do anything um, because this is a causal. It's not caused. This as pure awareness, it's not the product of anything. So there's nothing that we have to do or not do to just be here. So like that's the beginning assumption. So I come in and so often I'll say, so sort of why don't we just begin at the end? Because often what I find is that if people are attending a workshop, somehow they think they have to do a lot of work and they can really only get the goodies at the end. You actually see it. It's like in the last two or three hours, people's mindset changes and they think, okay, I've done enough work, now I'd better get what I'm here for. So I say, well, let's, if we sort of start um, at the end, then we can just do more of this. We can just be in the place where there's no gap, where nothing is missing. So that's the sort of assumption that's always there in the background, that nothing more needs to happen. We don't have to, there's no practice, that this is not about knowing anything, we can just, be here in this state of completion and we can check it if we complete by, for example, asking a question like, can I enhance this? Can I make it better? And make what better? No, I mean, there's nothing here to make better. So just checking that it's the real pure non-dual state. So that's the sort of beginning assumption and then I go back as much as is necessary to connect with people. It's like going on a journey with people. A little bit like imagine, you know, going for a walk in the mountains. And so you've got a group of people and I sort of know how to get there, where the path is and how to do it, how to get to the peak. And, uh, and then a lot of the work is working out what I call the gradient. If you're trying to go up too steeply, too, being too radical, you lose people. It's just, what is this? What is he talking about? This is impossible. I don't get it. But then if you're not, uh, if the gradient's just flat, you're wasting people's time. You're just engaging in stories and intellectual stuff like you were talking about. So a radiant mind is just, it's a, like a broad program that's pretty secular in how it's presented, so it can appeal to people of no faith, of different faiths. It, people can be uh, beginners, they can be mature practitioners, it, it really does pick up a lot of different people. And then it just works in as refined a way as possible to produce as much resting in awareness as possible. That's the name of the game. Well, there's something paradoxical about, about what you just said, though, and, and, and in a way it might sound to, like it contradicts what we have just spent the first 15 minutes talking about, which is that, you know, if a person comes, let's say, to a retreat or, or any situation, and they are very stressed, very conditioned, you know, kind of all keyed up, been mm -hmm. through a lot, and to take an extreme example, you know, going to a prison or something, and people have 
led pretty hellacious lives in, in many cases and really seen some tough and done some tough things. You know, do you just say to them, well, this can't be improved. I mean, this is this is what it is, and and how can it be made any better? You know, it seems to me, on the one hand, there is an element to our experience which is non-changing, however dimly we experience that, and there are degrees of clarity with which it can be experienced. So that, in and of itself, can't be enhanced or improved. But our appreciation of it, the clarity with which we experience it, and the degree to which we can embody it, knows no end of possible enhancement. Yeah, that's how I see it. Okay. I mean, if we are, for some reason, I think that oh, that we are infinitely complex and rich. So yeah, there's no end to the depth to which this can be embodied. But no, that's an important point that you're making. You don't present this to someone when there's a big disconnection, big discontinuity between where they are, because then they would invalidate this priceless state, the non-dual state. So no, in the, like the type of situation that you're describing, I would move more in the direction of, so yes, life is, really has been, really stressful, even just a few minutes ago. And maybe in, you know, half an hour, it's going to reconstitute, it's going to come back in that stressful way. But right now, we do have 30 minutes. We do have one day, whatever it is, together. So let's make the optimum opportunity of this time. Let's like really bring to ourselves, it's like a gift to ourselves, a gift to consciousness. What's the optimum possibility? Yet yeah, all that suffering is happening. So what's better to just like bring in something fresh and uh, peaceful and serene and open and spacious or to just process all that stuff just to let all the stories come out or we could just start to get into but you know when this finishes it's going to be like yeah we could do that but then we're devaluing the possibility of this moment so it would be introducing it like that rather than yeah with that more radical non-dual language yeah so it's like you know if, if a room is really dark and maybe there's some people in the room and you're talking to them, but you don't say, all right, let's analyze this darkness. Let's talk about the darkness. Let's dwell in the darkness. You say, oh, let's just flick on a light, you know, and then all of a sudden all this darkness that was such a problem is nowhere to be found. So right. I think what you're trying to say is that you, you, you do your best to point out to people that even in the midst of difficult life, mm -hmm. there is some still quiet center that can be detected if you stop a moment to detect it and that that can be cultured and, and strengthened in one's experience. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's what I hear yeah. you saying. Yeah, and I, I think another important point is sort of taking stock of the fact that we will suffer in the future. At least it's very, very likely that we will. So then we can sort of put that to the side because often people come in, I'm wanting to get the thing that will make it impossible to ever suffer in the future. Mm. To which I often respond, well, just forget that. You know, <laughs> just try to, like, just accept that as very likely you will. And now what can we do now that we've said, okay, that will probably happen. Do I have to be suffering now? Well, no, not necessarily. Yeah. <clears throat> and you can kind of get a toehold in that which is beyond suffering and hope, hopefully, yeah. hopefully strengthen your stand in that as you go along. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That that was a good introduction to your book. So, uh, um, what would you say was the next kind of main main point that comes to mind? 
ah, the main point that's here for me is that we can't know this because the two, that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, in doing the work I'm doing, often I see it as two mountains that we either need to go through, drill through, go around, it really doesn't matter how you do it, see that they're not there and they are the mountains of needing to be doing something. What do I need to do to get there? And how do I know it? And so what we're dissolving are those mountains. There's nothing to know and nothing to do. So in a sense, radiant mind is dissolving the notion of being on the path. Well, then when we're not on the path, it's not like we achieve a goal but then there's no more struggle. There's no, way, we, there's no further step to take. Okay, so nothing to do and nothing to know. So let's pick those apart a little bit. So the first one, nothing to do. How do you reconcile that with your own history as a Buddhist practitioner, which you probably did hundreds and thousands of hours of, of meditation practice? Mm. Was that kind of a non-doing and, that, and that's how you can kind of say, in the, oh yes, I did that, but at the same time there's nothing to do? Well, the nothing to do that we're talking about here is not like doing nothing. It's it's really doing the no thing. It's doing <laughs> it's it's doing this. It doesn't mean just like giving up. I mean that's a misinterpretation that I feel people can extract from some non-dual teachings approaches. That it's just like you walk away and just whatever, you just do yeah, what you're doing and do nothing. Li live life, crack a beer, you know, watch watch the football game, there's nothing to do, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> right. Yeah. This doing nothing is, do. it's a non-doing, but it's doing the no thing. It's doing pure awareness, like minute after minute, just resting here effortlessly. So it's a profound not doing. It's not the opposite of action. So we could say it's non-doing rather than not doing. Yes, yeah, so going back to my practice, I mean, I, I really wouldn't be able to analyze it. But it. It does make sense to me, the Zen notion, that we have to do as much as we've done in order to realize that we didn't have to do that in order to be here. Yeah. And without doing that, that we didn't need to do, we wouldn't be here. That's <laughs> very kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, you read that over and over again. People say when they wake up, when they attain enlightenment, so to speak, they realize that they always were that. You know, how could they have been anything other than that? How can the reality have not been real? Um, what is that verse in the Gita? It says, you know, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. Um, mm. But paradoxically, as you say, you know, we go through all these rigmaroles in order to come to that realization. Right. Mm -hmm. I like to think of the, the sun and clouds analogy, like, you know, the sun doesn't have to do anything to shine, but if there's clouds, then the clouds might obscure the view of the sun for those who are on the other side of them. So maybe there mm. needs to be some wind or something to blow the clouds away. And then the sun is found, oh, it's, it's always been shining. Analogies have their limitations, but it helps to mm. illustrate it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, I think in this work, that's part of what we're looking for in uh, working with a more strictly uh, non-dual approach or results. Uh, oriented approach that we're just looking for the way that we create something needs to happen before just that structure mm -hmm. 
That's how, that's how we get on the path. Other uh, clouds need to disperse and then, or I need to do more practice, or I need to go back and fix this part of my life up, or I need whatever it is. And then, of course, we just prolong being here. We can't be here if we think it's going to, it happens in the future. Well, I'm going to keep picking you on this with you because mm. on the other hand, you know, if you're deeply conditioned and attached and bound up in things, you may be here, but there's a lot of conditioning that's running your life. And it may be that after 10, 20 years of some sort of discipline or practice, your future, from the current perspective, ends up being a lot brighter than your present because you've undergone a lot of transformation. Right? Wow. right. For sure, for yeah. sure. But getting into that story, contextualizing what you're doing in the moment in that way, it's not saying that's what you're doing because you were looking at it more retrospectively, mm -hmm. but if that's what we're doing, we're thinking, ah, so I do this and it's sort of working and then it's, yeah, it's going to get sort of get even better, you know, I'm going to get this resource that will be more like, you know, solidly integrated in me, that's not resting in awareness, that's your in time. So that's again part of what I'm looking for. Are we in time in the construction that, that's in a construction, a construction that's in time, you know, how it's going to be in the future. The other option is to not be in time, not be, I mean, the past is there, the future is there as whatever we think it may be. But um, this is here in its purity and this is, we can't say what this is. There are all the labels that have been applied to it. And this is the ultimate state because when we're here, the great thing is we don't need anything. That's what it is. We're here. And someone comes and says, oh, look, Peter, well, first, what do you need? I don't need anything. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Uh, well, wouldn't you like more of it? It's just, again, it doesn't compute. Would you like a thousand dollars? Sure, why not? Here right now, I don't, why, <laughs> what for? I mean, it's sort of, if you leave, if it gets left there, yes, if it doesn't, whether there is no difference. When you say non-doing, is that similar to the notion like breathing is kind of a non-doing? You don't have to think about it, it just happens spontaneously. So are you saying that the living pure awareness or whatever you want to call it, should be so natural that it's just being lived without our having to think about it or hold on to it or make a fuss about it. It just kind of gets to be a second nature sort of thing. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And so it is natural meditation. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to have the form of meditation at all. It's this. This is natural meditation. The way to check that out is, is there any value to be derived in this moment from meditating? No, that's not obvious to me at all. Why would I meditate in this moment? Well, you're because, talking to me, you better not meditate. Right, <laughs> whatever. But there's no need because the fruition of meditation has happened through the resting in awareness. So it's natural meditation, or another phrase that's used, the meditation, that's not meditation. It's like it's happening without needing to do it, just to send it on us, just come to us. And yet the Buddha was said to have meditated a couple hours a day for the rest of his life after attaining, attaining enlightenment. If that's true, why did he do that? Because he was already 
enlightened. Yeah, but I doubt that he was sitting down and thinking, ah, so I've got to meditate now. Well, he may I have mean, done a sitting meditation of some kind, he may have just sat and... But he may not have been able to do that. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's not as though we become, you know, totally unconditioned and don't need to eat and do this and dress and what have you. I mean, people who've been meditating a lot, in some form, they connect with the non-dual, but they still sit a lot. Because it's like a habit. Yeah, they're used to doing it, to just, uh, yeah, being sort of pretty immobile and uh, just, yeah, watching awareness, watching the mind. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's not something that being done to produce a particular or an anticipated goal. I understand what you're saying. People who know me well are probably thinking at this point, oh yeah, Rick is just sort of arguing his particular obsession, which is that he's been meditating for a long, long time. And uh, you know, he's kind of defending the fact that he's, he still does this practice. And I would admit to that in a way. But I also have to be true to my own experience, which differs a little bit from what you're saying in that I do find that every time I meditate, I derive very profound benefit from it. It's refreshing, enlivening. You know, and as over the years, it continues to sort of take me deeper, so to speak, into the very same thing that I'm already experiencing, but there's greater depth and clarity that seems to continue to unfold. Yeah, yeah for sure, because earlier when I was talking about creating the optimal opportunity in the moment, that includes creating the optimal conditions. So a retreat environment is an attempt to create great conditions for accessing the non-dual. A component of that is meditation, like at home in a retreat environment in which you're effectively sitting down and saying, okay, so this time is for something different. This is not for just getting engaged in all the projects. This is not for thinking and planning what I'll be doing for the rest of the day, you know, next month. I'm sitting down because this is an opportunity for awareness. All right. So that's the opportunity here. Yeah, okay, so awareness, <laughs> what is that? Uh, and also the other opportunity, of course, is who's meditating? Right. All right, so I've done this thing, I'm, I'm here. Who is here, right? Presencing what? So for sure, meditation has been shown to be one of the structures that lends itself to uh, really supporting uh, accessing awareness. Yeah, and like I think you said earlier, if done in a certain way, it's, it's sort of a natural thing, like eating or sleeping or drinking water or the ver various things we need to do. It can become that kind of integral to one's life. And I'm not sort of trying to argue it as a universal mm -hmm. practice necessarily. Other people might find other mm -hmm. things more useful. I'm just sort of playing with you here on this first thing you said. You said two things, nothing to do, nothing to know, about this nothing to do point when just about every spiritual tradition in the world has all kinds of things one can do to apparently progress, become more pure, become more clear, you know, whatever they, they offer. And so that it can be confusing for people when they juxtapose a statement like there's nothing to do with traditions with which they may be familiar. So we should really change the phrase from, I should have uh, introduced it differently and be speaking about doing nothing, perhaps, rather than nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And how do we do nothing, the no thing? How do we do contentlessness? Yeah. How, how do we do selflessness? How do we do 
Atma Vidya, how do we do right beyond the personal self? The, one of the best ways to do it is, yeah, you sit down, right, already we're meditating, right, we sit down and we think, okay, so like how do I do that? Where is the self? How do I, we just pick a word, whatever it is, consciousness itself, centerlessness, what is that? Uh, where is that? Who is doing this? Doing what? So those are things that, right, those pointers happen much more easily, obviously, in that container of what we would call meditation because from the outside that's what it looks like. In a work, people can come to a workshop and I'll sometimes point out, I'll say, so are you meditating? I say, no, 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 we're not meditating, but then just I just note that if someone from the outside were to open the door, because there's a lot of silence in my retreats, people just resting, eyes open, eyes closed. Someone opened the door, they would say, ah, oh, they're meditating. It's a, this is a meditation retreat, meditation class. Yeah, there's that old saying, it takes a thorn to remove a thorn, you know. And um, I guess you could consider meditation in some of its forms to be a doing which takes you out of doing. It's a reduction of doing, less mm. and less, doing less and less. And, yeah. and yet, you know, you're still doing something as you, re as you retreat from doing. It's kind of like mm. if a person's standing in the middle of a great big mud puddle and, and they want to know how to get out of the mud puddle and somebody at the edge of the puddle says, well, take a step. And then he might say, well, yeah, but you're asking me to put my foot in the mud again. Yeah, but just mm. take a step, you know, and then take another step. And, and at a certain point, you're out of the puddles. So. <laughs> mm -mm. Yeah, exactly. And then so, yeah, the, then the, the important point is to be aware of the way a practice can be doing what you're saying, undoing the conditioning, like moving us through to awareness, or the way that a practice can be conditioning us, which is not the intention of a practice. Right. The, the practice isn't intend to just like really embed a need, a necessity to forever do that practice. It's meant to release us, yeah. to bring nirvana, moksha. Yep, good. The other part of it that you said is not knowing. Mm. And um, you hear that a fair amount. And yet you also, you know, there are all kinds of scriptures one can read and you can learn all kinds of things. And so-called enlightened people seem to be very wise and sometimes very articulate and they say profound things. It seems like they know a lot. So play with that. And, you know, what are you saying when you mean not knowing? What I mean in saying not knowing is uh, pointing out that this awareness isn't an object of knowledge. So we can't know this. It's no more complicated than that. Could you say it knows itself in some way or does, is that even too dualistic to say? At this point, when I hear you or someone say something like that, can this know itself, can awareness know itself, I just look at what my mind does with that. Mm -hmm. That's the only really, the only significant thing. If uh, my mind starts to do something with that, then it's not, the phrase is not doing what I think it's intended to do, which is to take me beyond the mind. In fact, it's giving me some, something to think about. Uh, this can know itself. That, is this the same thing? How does it know itself? As a philosopher, I could get quite a... I know that you can 
in fact, there are schools, some schools built on the fact that, that awareness is self-knowing and others refute that. It can become a big thing. I'm just looking for how do we disengage the mind so that we can presence this. Yeah, so I just try and keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, and in speaking in terms of our own experience, you know, I think we both have some experiential familiarity with what we're discussing here, but it's not like something we know the way I know, you know, what my ring is made of, or I know some mathematical formula, or I know my wife's name or something. It's not a subject-object relationship kind of thing. Would you say that it's the knower, radiant awareness, and that the knower that can know this, that, or the other thing, but to know itself, what does it have to do? Yeah, it's the knower that can't be found. Because it can't step I'm, apart from itself and say, oh, here I am over here, because then it wouldn't. Right, because yeah. then the subject is being objectified. Right. So we're continuing to look for, like, the ground of subjectivity, mm -hmm. like where the knowing is coming from, who the knower is. And if we know anything about that, that's no longer the knower. There's something actually that, that re relates to both these points then, the doing and the knowing. It, it's actually reflected in a question that someone named Elizabeth had sent in. She said, is what you call radiant mind equivalent to Sahaja Samadhi? I'm not sure if you're familiar with all those samadhi terms, and I'm not either. There are all these different flavors of samadhi. But if we, if we think of what we're talking about, ordinarily the mind is agitated, right? And to a certain extent, and it, we're, the attention is directed outwards. And what we're talking about here is a, a kind of a settling down. So as, are you familiar with the Yoga Sutras? The second verse in the Yoga Sutras says that yoga is the cessation of fluctuations the of the mind. Yeah, yoga's chitta vritti naroda, and then the seer rests in the self, or the knower rests in itself. That's that's what we're describing here. So, how would you describe what you're saying in terms of some of those? I know you had a Buddhist background, but in terms of some of those more traditional Hindu terms, I guess the Buddhists have the same things. They they talk about samadhi and so on, don't they? Also, sure, sure, sure. Radiant mind is just one way of uh, using one phrase to talk about the co-arising of the conditioned and the unconditioned, the co-arising of awareness and the contents of awareness, the co-arising inseparability of uh, emptiness and appearances, emptiness and form, which is the sahaja state. It's not emptiness as a state that's disconnected from the conditioned reality. It's this weird recognition that this is unconditioned and really totally inseparable from all of these conditions, the shapes, the forms, the sounds, this infinitely complex matrix that can be subdivided probably uh, in so many ways, and that this that has no content can't be differentiated. I mean, it's impossible to, in some ways it shouldn't be like this. This should be impossible, what's happening right now. But it isn't. Just the way that awareness that has no content can interface. I mean, it, that's not even the right word because there's no interface, but that it can interface with the contents of awareness. I'm not, never going to have an answer for that. That for me is 
like in Buddhism, an, an unanswerable question. It's not formally one of the unanswerable questions, but it is unanswerable. It's a beautiful point, actually. The mystery of awareness being able to interact or interface with stuff. Mm. The way I understand it is that the stuff with which awareness appears to be interacting or interfacing is actually also awareness. <laughs> and that, so that awareness is interacting with itself and through the process of doing that gives rise to the apparent diversity of subject-object relationships, forms and phenomenon. But even from the standpoint of contemporary physics, at least as some physicists understand it, if you analyze anything deeply enough, you get right down to that bedrock of the non-dual state. And that, that thing, which appears to be a thing, is nothing other than that non-dual state. So it's a fascinating thing to consider. I mean, if, if the non-dual state is the ultimate reality, then can there actually be, I mean, th there are, there can be subsidiary realities, we can say, all the, the forces and, you know, fields and matter and so on that, that comprise the universe, but what are they essentially, you know, other than that non-dual state having somehow gotten excited or perturbed? But look at it more closely, and it never did get excited or perturbed. There, there are saints like Ramana Maharshi and others who, who say, nothing ever happened, actually. It just appears mm -hmm. to have happened. The, the, the string was never a snake. It just was mistaken to be one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me throw a question at you, because I kind of left you stumped there. Well, I, do, I don't have... Uh, nothing's happening. That's <laughs> One thing I find interesting is that, you know, you, you define yourself as an, a non-dual psychotherapist or uh, you have a non-dual approach to psychotherapy. And I'm not very familiar with the Buddhist tradition. Is, is non-duality really a, a lively term in Buddhist thinking? Or are you kind of a, a hybrid between Buddhist tradition and Advaita? And that's, how, that's why you use the, the term non-dual a lot. Really, I really appreciate the question because uh, many people don't uh, realize how thoroughly the term uh, non-duality is used in uh, Mahayana Buddhism in particular. But it is, it's used again and again in uh, anything that is coming out of uh, what's called the Prajna Parameter, the perfection of wisdom tradition. So Zen, Dzogchen, Madhyamika, Mahamudra, all of the central texts, you go to any glossary, you'll find non-duality. So it is, it's, it's an integral part of those traditions. And a non-duality that is uh, essentially the same as non-duality, in which the language of contradiction, neither this nor that, the language that you find in Advaita, probably the closest, just in terms of language, is a Gaudapada, from Advaita, who some people thought was a was a crypto Buddhist, <laughs> a Buddhist. Yeah, mm. but no, no, it's uh, embedded in Buddhism. You also have the notion of uh, upaya, skillful methods. This you know great diversity of methods, all leading to the non-dual state. Mm -hmm. So that's in a way what has supported this diffusion of methods and diffusion of different non-dual approaches. 
Yeah, it would stand to reason. I should hope that non-duality would be there as much in Buddhism as as anywhere, uh, because obviously, I mean, I, I'm a, of a mind that if you got together the founders of all these great traditions, mm -hmm. Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad, and put them in a room together, they would all describe a common experience that they had just spoken about in different languages, in different cultures. But, but there's really, what is it, the incredible string band saying, a light that is one, though the lamps be many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, going back to what we were saying about meditation, I think there's a certain point that we're just taken through into the non-dual. You know, for a while it's efforting and mindfulness or just observing what is awareness like deconstructive inquiry, unfindability, self-inquiry, pointing out whatever it is. Then it's seeming to require something from our side, but then it's like when you really are close to awareness, it just draws us in. Yeah. And then you get that natural release and that deconstruction, the dissolving of thoughts and just the, yeah, the, the play of awareness. Yeah, that draws us in point is nice. I mean, what we're, we started talking about in the, in the very beginning, we started talking about bliss, right? It would seem that the mind would naturally be drawn toward bliss if given the opportunity. I mean, if you and I are talking like this and then some beautiful music started to play over here, our attention would just kind of be attracted to it because the mind has this natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness. And, you know, it's, it seems almost perplexing in a way that all these traditions speak of the blissful nature of mm. reality and Satchitananda and the bliss of the self and all that stuff. And yet we, we are kind of um, estranged from it, you mm. know? It would, mm. it would seem that we would just sort of sink like a stone into that bliss. Mm. 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 And yet? <laughs> uh, yeah, and yet, well, given the right, the conducive opportunities and uh, elegant instructions, elegant ways of doing it. That is what happens. You've, you people just uh, see the opportunity and you can just feel them, just go into these uh, real samadhi states that are really just so nourishing <clears throat> because they're like just giving our nervous system a different message. They're giving our nervous system the message that yes, we are capable of uh, generating uh, great bliss, mahasukha, within ourselves as a function of consciousness and, uh, and our nervous system. Yeah, and I mean, speaking neurobiologically, neurochemically, if you, I'm sure you've heard of neuroplasticity where the, the brain can actually be sculpted through experiences like that. And, uh, and all the various chemicals that one could hope to take, you know, as a drug in order to elicit some kind of response, our, our own body manufactures those if we learn how to, uh, and, and can manufacture them in greater abundance if we know how to use that instrument. Someone asked here, Elizabeth again, I have a bunch of questions from her and maybe others will be sending in some questions, but let's try to nail down a definition of enlightenment. Um, her question mm -hmm. is, is enlightenment really anything other than resting as awareness? That is, in the innermost nature of mind with stability. Is that, would that be a good working definition of enlightenment? See, when you're asking someone who's versed in uh, the Buddhist mm -hmm. tradition, particularly Mahayana Buddhism, what's enlightenment, you're going to get a different answer because uh, then if you ask um, someone in, uh, let's say, the Advaita tradition, Sufism or mm -hmm. Taoism, 
whatever other non-dual traditions because a distinction is made between enlightenment and nirvana, enlightenment and personal freedom. What's the difference? The difference is personal freedom is sometimes called realizing the profound, which is the profound empty nature of mind. It's really what I am offering in Radiant Mind and what I guess I would say is a path that I feel that in a lifetime you can do something with it, you can get somewhere with it. It's um, accessing, becoming more and more, rec firstly recognizing and then becoming more familiar with awareness, mm -hmm. centerlessness, pure awareness. So that's reaching a state in which it's like this mind stream, who I am, who I connect myself with being, that I have reached a state of uh, fulfillment, contentment, that there's nowhere further to go. It's like the work's done. This is it. In this moment, at least, we can like, regress from that and think we've lost it and so on. But in this moment, it's complete. Enlightenment is uh, this what you referred to, I think, at least how I understood what you're saying. It's this the possibility that we are infinite in some way at the conditioned level, that I'm not just like a skin encapsulated body with a, a pretty small mind that can become liberated, but in some way I am infinitely complex and that the awareness can be deepened. It's like, I mean, it's so out there enlightenment relative to moksha or nirvana. It's so out there. It's like the macrocosm and the microcosm, you know, becoming one. It's more like the, no, it's becoming divine. Enlightenment is part of Tantra, for example, and the practice of deity yoga. So it's, it, in contrast to the profound, it's called the extensive or the expansive. So it has this notion of expansion to include or infuse. Somehow we become the consciousness that infuses the universe. That would probably be the best and perhaps the only way I can describe it at the moment without it starting to sound like sort of Buddhist theology or something. Yeah, and maybe we're extrapolating beyond our direct experience by, mm. but, but it, I suppose it's, you know, it's good to define our terms so that we, we're on the same page in terms of what we're talking about. So I, I would have thought that in Buddhism, enlightenment is just the English word for moksha or nirvana. Uh, but what, you're, what you seem to be saying is that those are kind of, in a way, more preliminary or fundamental and that enlightenment is, is kind of even more glorious or profound or, or, or expansive or something than those. Yeah, that's how it's understood, yeah. It's like you, the first thing you get under your belt is moksha, nirvana. Uh -huh. Right. Because then, you know, how can you be this... Be a, a, become a cosmic contribution to others, to the universe. First, you've got to get your own liberation handled. So mm -hmm. you sort of go, that's you, yeah, you go to preliminary school and get that, get that out the way. And then you go for, yeah, this, this deepening through the 
the, your, your own internal structure, and then yeah, this cosmic vision in which the subject-object isn't playing out. You're not just a, a, you know, a unique body-mind, but somehow connected with the cosmos. Okay, so based on what you've just said, let me just summarize it to see if I understand it. What you're saying is that moksha or nirvana would be sort of a, a realization of oneself as pure awareness <laughs> and, you know, resting in, in, one, in that state of pure awareness, but not necessarily an appreciation of, you know, that pure awareness permeating the entire or, or containing within it the entire universe. But enlight yeah. enlightenment would be that with the latter that there, yeah. there's a much greater wholeness which is kind of subsumed yeah. um, both relative and absolute within its... Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I appreciate the way that you're describing it. Okay. Yeah. Another question from Elizabeth. Elizabeth is conducting this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've kind of covered this one. Let me know if there's anything more you want to say about it. She said, what is the role of various sadhanas in relation to simply resting in and as the nature of mind? And I think you may have touched, it, you know, done it pretty well in terms of the, one can do all sorts of things to eventually arrive at, this, at the realization that one isn't doing or doesn't need to or, or doesn't need to have done anything. But is there another any point, more point you'd yeah. like to say on that? Just that, yeah, you'd like to pick a sadhana that at some point has you asking the question, who's doing this? Right. That would be good. Not one that you're just going to kind of grind away at endlessly. Yeah, <laughs> right. 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 Okay, good. This is an interesting question. Is something like confidence necessary in order to rest as awareness? And is this confidence emotional? In other words, a sense of being capable, worthy, deserving? Or is it cognitive based upon just a clear understanding of our true nature being nothing other than pure awareness? And I guess I would just add to that question, um, does one need to sort of be emotionally healthy or mature uh, or integrated as well as mentally capable and clear in order to rest as pure awareness or can one be sort of flawed in one or another of these dimensions and yet still rest as pure awareness? Uh, yeah, sure. I, don't, I think we see that again and again that uh, there are no preconditions. So you can have someone who looks, you know, really healthy, you could put them through actually psychometric testing and they come out, you know, a really healthy individual who, you know, lives life well and they're responsible and so on and confident. Uh, doesn't necessarily give them a basis for uh, letting go of self-identity, letting go of everything and being no one going nowhere and being awareness and you can have someone who's like the whole thing's a bit shaky you know who I am and uh, what's what and uh, life doesn't look you know particularly together and uh, have a history of uh, even some like psychological imbalance disturbance for whom that who has ready access to this so this sort of that's possible because there are no preconditions and certainly going back to India and Tibet I mean you didn't like have to be uh, you know mentally integrated they're pretty weird and wild and wonderful uh, women and men who were uh, you know often the virtuosos in uh, non-dual practice uh, then the other question is though from a teaching point of view 
who do you offer this perspective to? And for me, the important point in this is two things. It's important not to make this attractive, to look attractive. It's important not to package awareness as something that people should have, that they need, that if they have this, then they will have everything they want. Because then that brings, uh, people are coming in on the basis of deficiency, on the basis of need. And so that's a tricky, tricky business. Well, I can see how, you know, you, you don't want to package it in such a way as to, you know, suggest that if you have awareness, you're going to get the Mercedes and the flashy girlfriend and all that kind of stuff. But speaking of emotional and psychological abnormalities, isn't the condition of the world a, a kind of a, a display of, you know, collective psychological problems on a mass scale? I've kind of always thought of spiritual development as, as not only getting established in pure awareness, but kind of getting all your, your loose screws tightened and, you know, getting all the, all the blind spots and the, and the shadow stuff and the psychological twists and turns that might be disrupting your personal life resolved and healed in the process of your spiritual development and that, you know, if enough people were to do that, we might see that, that, that effect uh, on societal scales. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in the long term, if someone like has an initial recognition and that this, they want to take this to heart, take the non-dual to heart and work with it and develop it. Yeah, it does. Re well, it requires healing your mind. It requires working with your mind, perhaps at a psychological level, but just in terms of how you're interacting with people. So you're not creating like one drama, one trauma, one breakdown after another, which just throws you further into the conditions, further into samsara and doesn't let you engage with the practice, the simplicity of just, ah, what is this? This is awareness and this is what we're doing. Just sitting here in this really uncontrived, settled, uh, settled way. Yeah. And we might ask if getting established in your own nature, pure awareness, settled awareness, whatever we want to call it, does not result in you being a better person in some way. If it's just sort of a marinating in my own inner bliss and then I come out and I act like a jerk, what good is it? I, I mean, I've seen people get very self-indulgent in pursuing spiritual development and, and actually become less nice as people than, than the average person rather than more nice and that that's sometimes a head-scratcher. Right, but I'm not sure that the states that you're talking about is the state of pure awareness, centerlessness, the state that is um, really embracing, the state that that in a way compels us to deal with whatever's arising, the state that doesn't let us retreat from engagement, doesn't let us retreat from complexity. I mean, awareness is the state, there's no escape. Like whatever's arising, it's there mm -hmm. and uh, has to be worked with and dealt with in whatever way it is. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no power or energy within awareness that lets us avoid anything. Good, yeah. So, I mean, you're the psychologist, that's why I'm, I'm asking you these questions. So, are you saying that awareness, it's like light in a way, that it, it kind of begins to illuminate stuff that might have been hidden from us? Or to use another metaphor, it's like a solvent that begins to dissolve stuff that's been 
kind of embedded, and that if awareness is developed, then you know the dark corners of our minds and emotions, or the tight knots of constriction that that might be hidden to us, begin to resolve, and life begins to flow more smoothly because we're not carrying around this this hidden baggage. What happens as we become more familiar with awareness as awareness infuses our being more comprehensively, we become aware of our conditioning in a more subtle way. Yeah. We become aware of how we're conditioning things moment by moment. So in relationships, in conversations, there's just more acuity, more sensitivity, we say a sentence, we, we, we sense the impact of that. And in Radiant Mind, I talk about working in a way that we are ongoingly complete, so that we're not creating incompletions. Mm. So being in the world in a way that we're taking care of what has to be taken care of in the moment, in the here and now, so then in the next moment we have more possibility, more opportunity of being in that moment because we don't have to go back and like do repair work yeah. because we were rough and unskillful in uh, communication, in a, an engagement that we had. Well, that's a good point. There's a verse in the Gita that says uh, yoga is skill in action. Mm. You know, yoga yeah, karma yeah. sakoshalam. Mm. And you think of like Christ said when they were crucifying, he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. I mean, if, if a person were spiritually aware and, as you say, sensitive and attuned, they wouldn't be able to do a thing like that. You know, they, right. So it would seem that kindness is a, an outcome of greater spiritual attunement. Yeah, kindness, care. Compassion, yeah, all, all those yeah. good things. Yeah, and just in relationships, not, not being manipulative. Yeah. Being able to have a greater intimacy in relationships because we're not yeah, trying to manipulate people. There's nothing from our side that we're trying or needing to defend so we can really let people enter us mm -hmm. and let them interact with us. I wanted to just dwell on that a little bit because sometimes, even in this conversation we've been having, it's, it's sometimes suggested that spiritual development is sort of intrinsically useful and in terms of the subjective experience one has, but it doesn't necessarily have practical implications or applications to one's behavior in daily life. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that. And I think you've articulated nicely how, you know, it, it does have practical implications in terms of being less of a schmuck. <laughs> and ideally, a, possibly a, an even saintly person as time goes on. Actually, related to this a little bit, we talk about, we've been talking about emotions and treating people more kindly and, and that being a kind of an outcome of being more sensitively attuned to awareness. A more kind of superlative degree of, of this sort of thing would be devotion. And uh, Elizabeth asks, what is the role of devotion in relation to resting as awareness? Mm, mm, mm. If devotion I mean, I'm just looking at it now. What I, what I enjoy doing is uh, taking a word, hearing a word, like devotion, and just seeing where I can go with that. Taking a word like uh, centerlessness, taking a word like source, Christ consciousness, whatever it would be, and just seeing 
where I go, what what journey can I, how can I move with that? And uh, yeah, devotion has something uh, yeah very sweet. So is there something that I can do with that personally? It's not like there's a right answer to any of these things. I think that we have bring to this a great deal of responsibility in terms of how we work with different concepts. Something like devotion, if we can do something that's very sweet and very simple with this that may be identified with uh, someone, something, a source of energy, saint, teaching, have devotion to it, that's, that's great. But also just realizing that the devotion here is devotion also to the totality. I can see devotion uh, working to a lot of what we've been saying, which is this notion of taking care of the totality of our existence so that we can do what we're doing now. What we're doing now, even though it's unconditioned, it is a product of all of the things that we've done and the care that we've taken and the devotion and commitment that we've had to teachings, to the path, to other people. So yeah, devotion. I see devotion yeah, more in a holistic way that that can work. Have you ever been in a relationship with a teacher, let's say, and experienced mm -hmm. um, you know, real kind of waves of love and devotion, really? I mean, that's a better word than just love because of the kind of the purity of it and the Mm. The, the heights to which it can it can soar i have yeah it's a sweet thing and, and i have too and and you know there sometimes there's a sort of a dryness to the way spiritual teachings are, are presented but if you kind of look into the heart of them a little bit more you, you usually find that you know these these teachers that we revere mm. Ra ramana and the sargadatta and all that they they really had their devotional dimension and uh, and that they they themselves lauded that as being something really precious and sweet, mm. not not mm. to be missed. Absolutely. Mm. Here's an interesting question. This again is a little philosophical. I think another one from Elizabeth. There's some people who say that you know since there really is no person essentially at the core of who we are, we're really just pure awareness that reincarnation doesn't make sense because that would imply a person who somehow reincarnates from body to body. So mm. Elizabeth asks here, what is a mind stream and what is it that reincarnates from one day to the next, one lifetime to the next, one moment to the next? How, if at all, is reincarnation consistent with a non-dual view? Well, the question uh, comes down, yes, to how do we exist from one uh, day to the next, from one second to the next. It's not only a question of the possibility of uh, there being a continuity uh, yeah, from one life to another. If there's no self, how is it that I wake up uh, thinking I'm the same self today as this person who I remember waking up, same environment, same body yesterday? I uh, don't really have an answer for it. I mean, there are a lot of things that I've, you know, thought about and uh, taught and written about, studied, but a stream of consciousness, it's, a, it's what a person is. It's just a, a, a body-mind, the conditioning of which is contained, sort of causally contained in a particular way. And um, 
you don't need a self for that to be coherent, for that to function coherently, for it to function uh, and have continuity over time. The question of uh, reincarnation is a, you know, a little bit different because it sort of assumes a more, what would you say, mentalist, a more that you know the universe maybe is not uh, as solid as we think it is. It's, uh, yeah. In a way, I'm asking you all kinds of metaphysical mm. questions. It's, it's not really fair in a way because you know we've been talking from the beginning about being true to our own experience, and I'm hitting you with all this stuff that you know who who can really answer for sure. Uh, mm. So I, I apologize for that and. You know, I want to make sure to keep it real here and to, um, Elizabeth is asking some interesting questions, but, you know, I want to make sure that we don't miss the opportunity for you to talk about things that are really dear to your heart and that you consider really important for people to hear. So, mm. you know, if I don't bring out some question that, and, and you feel like, I wish he'd ask me this, feel free to just like throw it out there and, and you know, start talking about something, okay? Mm -mm. Okay, thank you. So is, is there anything like that, that that's important to you that we've been totally yeah, ignoring? Yeah, I think we, we haven't been ignoring it. We've been touching on it. But I think that's just the ease of what we're talking about and that it is effortless and that it... I, I love the idea of natural state, just the words natural state, because yeah. it, works, it works at two levels for me. We have our natural state at the unconditioned level in which your natural state, everyone who realizes their natural state has awareness, it's like the same realization. And I find it beautiful to think that the saints of the past, Sufism, Advaita, Taoism, Buddhism, when they are resting in awareness, we know what was happening. We know where they were. And for me, being able to draw on the lineage in that way not just a Buddhist, but the non-dual lineage and just feel, wow, we are participating in this lineage that's been represented so comprehensively and that there have been historically hundreds of thousands of people who've been masters, virtuosos, lived their lives in this state is really inspiring because for many people in the West, it's, it's new, it's what is it and it's something that is part of our historical uh, heritage to draw on. And then also realizing that, uh, yeah, no work, that this is the utmost in simplicity. Just giving our minds nothing to think about is a beautiful gift for however long we do it. Nothing to work out, nothing to think about, nothing to process. Just like break from the whole thing just to... Mm. Yes, and then realizing that there's nothing to do, no work, that the doing nothing, doing no thing, and realizing that it is the, the ultimate medicine, as it's spoken about in Buddhism. The Buddha was the preeminent doctor teaching the ultimate medicine. And that the, the words that we use are just not important. You know, emptiness, self-knowledge, Sahaja Samadhi, it's, and, and the word that, that, that I really go for is this, because it's the word that's it's just often, the word this. just this, because yeah. it's, it's used in Buddhism, ta-ta-ta, just this, it keeps it simple. 
in your own experience, um, was resting in the natural state something that just sort of um, grew imperceptibly, like like the sun rising very slowly and it just starts to get a little bit light and a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter? Or, or was there some kind of dramatic shift at some point which you said, aha, you know, and then you, you kind of like never went back after that? Well, certainly the former, yes, things growing, developing incrementally over the years and then that, that being punctuated by... Milestones. Yeah, something that, you know, I would say, you know, particular time and place, particular insight, realizations, whatever happening, I think, oh, wow, that was, that was pretty, yeah, that was an important, that was a significant milestone. And those things, of course, can take you all the way through, just as we can come all the way through now to presencing awareness but still regressing from that, still things closing up, still, you know, feeling contracted. So no, I haven't had states that have uh, taken me all the way through and then stabilized beyond that. I think I was trying to clarify that at the beginning. So do you feel like for you the degree to which you rest in the natural state kind of um, oscillates, you know, sometimes mm. much more so, sometimes mm. less so? And yeah. 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 And so when you feel more constricted or, you know, mm. kind of a little like you've lost the natural state to some extent, what do you do to regain it? Uh, the best is to engage in a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And that can be a conversation with myself. It can be a conversation with other people, with students, with uh, peers. It can writing, I find really great because, you know, I, when I write, I want to write from this. So that's a great way to come back here. I can read something that I've written that comes from this state and then it takes me back into it. So that would, that would be the way. So, yeah, conversations that are deconstructive conversations that are designed to take us beyond the mind and bring us back here. Is this conversation doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can, can for definitely. Yeah, I think, I th thank you very much. Good. Yeah. <laughs> when you're resting in your natural state, most clearly, most profoundly, most deeply, how would you describe that experience? Well, I think it has the two components, what I was describing, that our natural state as awareness. The other component that's great is natural state can be talking about our conditioned state as well. In other words, just being natural, mm -hmm. not feeling contrived, not feeling artificial, not trying to prove anything, not trying to avoid anything, not trying to be you know, deploying energy, trying to be someone different from how we are. So it's natural at the conditioned level, just being who I am, mm -hmm. and the effortlessness that's involved in that, and yeah, the naturalness. And in fact, we have to discover ourselves in that way to also allow for the recognition of our natural state in this more profound way. Otherwise, we're just involved in the management of our identity. 
how people are thinking of me, what do I need to do, you know, just all of that stuff that we can get so preoccupied with. Mm. It strikes me that a good synonym for natural, the way you're describing it, would be simple. You know, Christ said, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So, you know, we think of children as simple and innocent, and uh, the opposite of that being all sort of contriving and complex and all the stuff that people get caught up in. So, innocent. innocent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another yeah. good synonym. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, childlike almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. <laughs> And you see that actually in, in more kind of vividly in, in certain mm. saints, you know, like Ramana just kind of sitting there with this sort of look of complete mm. innocence on his face and gentleness and naturalness and, and then contrast him perhaps with someone in, in the commodities trading pit at the Chicago Stock Exchange, you know, <laughs> gives you a good illustration of what natural state looks like. <laughs> yeah. One thing that people are talking about a lot these days it's, is embodiment. There's a lot, there seems to be a trend in contemporary spirituality where a lot of people had some sort of non-dual realization or recognition of their natural state, their true nature, but it was um, not really integrated with their experience as a human being, you know, who has relationships, who has financial challenges and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And so a lot of people these days are talking about embodiment and uh, somehow integrating the, the, the self-realization or whatever you want to call it into real life. Yeah. Um, do you have any comments on that? Uh, well, I think if we're doing it in the way that we're doing it, now, we'll say, let's just say a little bit like in the radiant mind way, mm -hmm. that the embodiment is happening because this is not something that's happening separately from everything else in our life. Like you're in your environment, I'm in my environment, like familiar environment, you know, books, this and that, things that signify different projects and kitchen and or what have you. Mm -hmm. So, it, the, the integration happens through presencing the non-dual in like our regular daily environment and activity. So, in a program like Radiant Mind, running over nine months, a lot of it is happening end-on-end end with uh, what's happening in people's lives. So, a lot of the work happens like this, video conferencing, teleconferencing, so people can have just come out of a difficult conversation with their partner or come back from work, you know, stressed out and what have you. And then a few minutes later, they're on the phone, presencing awareness, like making the journey, but still with an awareness of the context of their lives. So the integration is happening by being, so there's no segmentation happening. You don't have to segment yourself and sort of compartmentalize yourself in a particular way to to be here. You can't like take awareness and whatever, shove it into our body, push it into relationships. It comes through being open, not being closed. And as I said, when we're aware, I mean, real awareness, we can't close down anyway. 
people were compelled to be open. So I think the uh, what's happening is the emphasis on embodiment is describing an integrated practice of awareness, basically. Yeah. It's describing, and, and that's more and more what people are looking for in the West, an integrated practice, not one that you head off to India and you go to Nepal or the Himalayas or wherever and you hang out there for a few months doing a retreat, which is great. I think really, I think that is really excellent. And I think that's integrated too. I don't, I don't see that as being unintegrated. There you're integrating with stuff that wouldn't come up if you weren't sitting with yourself for a few months. So I, I overall, I think it's great what everyone is doing. I, I just think it's it's really wonderful. Yeah. And I don't find myself being critical and thinking, oh, that's not so good, they should be doing this. I think that just so much energy and application and interest that we find these days in spirituality, the non-dual Buddhism, it's all wonderful. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, I wasn't criticizing those people who were talking about embodiment. I think it's long overdue and uh, there was too much disembodied talk, you know, going on for a while and, um, you know, that, that could only last so long because life smacks you in the face, you know. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, in, in your case, you were like a, a celibate monkey in the Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist traditions for nine years. Um, were you like in monasteries in, in over there in Tibet or something? In, no, in India? Some in India, but more in Australia. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. And, and then was there a bit of a reintegration period that was a little difficult for you after those nine years? The transition was very difficult. Yeah. Um, then uh, that took about a year. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the transition, because it was a transition from a system that in a profound way had supported me, I mean, really supported me, yeah. you know, for, that and shelter. so I, I was, yeah, really indebted to what I received from it. So that was, uh, that wasn't simple, but it seemed necessary. It seemed it was going to be pulled apart anyway, in part, maybe in order to do what I have been doing in the last couple of decades in terms of you know, discovering and then offering something that's more secular, not overtly Buddhist-based and, you know, has a wider spread to it. Right, yeah. So you had a preparatory phase and then yeah. you had to yeah. come out in the world and yeah. do your yeah. thing. Someone named Doug sent in a question uh, mm. just now. He said, um, how does happiness relate to the resting in awareness? And this is the second part of the question. He said, sometimes mm. it appears meditators appear to be more paranoid and of high anxiety than the rest of the populace. Why is that? I would say that okay. sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but I, I see okay. his point. Why, why would that be, do you think? Don't know, I don't see that. You don't? Maybe. Them being more... High anxiety. I mean, med 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 yeah, meditators can I mean, get a little bit nervous about, like if they're holding on to their meditative state, if they're wanting to, then it can easily feel threatened, sure. I guess the way I'd phrase it is, is sometimes it seems that people who are really into spiritual stuff are kind of obsessive, idiosyncratic, kind of nutty sometimes. And, I, and I've often wondered, are nutty people attracted to spirituality or does spirituality make you nutty? 
And yet it's, uh, that's not a total generalization because there are all kinds of wonderful, bright, clear people, but it does seem, or maybe it's just a cross-section of the general population and mm. you'd find that anywhere, spiritual or non-spiritual. Yeah, I don't have enough uh, experience to, uh, you know, to read, I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the people that, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Well, I don't know is a uh, perfectly the good answer, part, you know. <laughs> okay, the first part, the, the happiness, yeah, I, all I've really got to say there is that obviously the non-dual is different from feeling happy because happiness is something that comes and goes. It's a conditioned state and I think it's great. I mean, happy is being healthy. The more happiness we have, the better, but it's not the final goal, final objective. And if it becomes the final objective, it begins to produce suffering. We become attached to it and then suffer when we lose it. Well, it also sort of depends on what we mean by happiness, does it? doesn't it? I mean, there's kind of relative transitory happiness that's based upon the condition of our physiology or what we're experiencing. And then there's that ground of awareness we've been talking mm. about, which is kind of said to be intrinsically blissful. This is worth dwelling on for a second. And, and that is that it may be intrinsically blissful, but who experiences that bliss other than a being such as ourselves? and it seems that our capacity to experience is, is always going to be somewhat vulnerable and fluctuating. I mean, when Ramana was screaming in pain when he was dying of cancer, was he experiencing bliss underneath that pain? When people said to him, oh, we're so sorry that you're suffering like this, he would say, I'm not suffering. Um, so perhaps it is possible to achieve a state in which, despite outward appearances to the contrary, one resides in a field that is untouched by relative pain and pleasure and whatnot, just establish an equanimity regardless of whether you're, you're burning in fire or getting a nice oil massage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that's the way we, what's what we are discovering for ourselves, that, uh, that possibility. Yeah. And occasionally we can break through to that, finding that uh, something that's uh, intensely painful can become transformed, does become transformed, maybe just for a few seconds into something that's uh, blissful, but uh, then quickly, uh, like a rubber band, it just uh, snaps back into an experience of pain. But mm. Uh, yeah, for me, the most important thing is being really appreciative of what we already have and not sort of racing ahead too quickly into how things might be, mm. but really appreciating that we have the recognition of awareness, the most profound recognition that's possible for any human being. So that's happened. I mean, that is incredible, marvelous. It is rare. It doesn't uh, happen to everyone. So that recognition has happened. We've got like the marker. We know what it is without any doubt or dispute. And that it's become uh, an integral part of our lives. We're living our lives in order to develop and grow this. So there's nothing more to do. 
I mean, that's that's what we're, we're doing, sort of as much as can be done. If we were trying harder, we'd be doing something else. It wouldn't be this. It would be, you know, being caught by our desires, our need to suffer less, our need to whatever. So really appreciating what we have already accomplished and uh, having the, someone mentioned confidence, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. that, and the confidence is there at this point. It's great when you arrive at the point that we know that we can be confident that we can't let go of this, that this has sort of got us yeah. and it's going to be with us uh, at least for the rest of this life. And it's not just uh, something that we've picked up and looked at and played around with a little bit and said, oh, that was fun and that was interesting, but we'll move on to something else. No, we've sort of gone beyond that. And that's a really wonderful uh, state to have achieved. Yeah. And you used the word rare a minute ago. Um, it has been relatively rare given the 8 billion people in the world, what percentage of people are having the kind of experience we're talking about. But I do find it kind of inspiring and hopeful that seems to be becoming more and more commonplace. Whereas 2,000 years ago, you had to be a spiritual superman to have the kind of breakthrough that these days people are having all over the place. There seems to be some kind of popcorn effect going on, some kind of epidemic effect mm -hmm. that I think bodes well for the future of humanity, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And it's great that people like you are playing their part in helping to bring that about. I am wonderful that you are profiling so many people and doing what you're saying. Both that you're bringing uh, the sophistication of the conversation that you are in, in your uh, sessions. I, I really appreciate that, that uh, the sophistication, you're right, like, yeah, at the edge of where the conversation is and needs to be. And that you are able to profile so many people who are sharing awareness, sharing their experience of it, is a testament to what you're saying. Well, I really enjoy doing it. And I realize that there are a lot of people out there that really I would love to talk to and that deserve to be on this show and, and that people would like to get exposed to. And I just do as many as possible, which so far is one a week. I hope to eventually increase the frequency, but I still have a somewhat of a day job mm. and, and other things going on. But you know, for me, mm. this has been a lifelong interest, not just a curiosity, or, or, but a, really a passion. And uh, you know, I've devoted literally hours a day to focused mm. uh, application of this interest. And it's been very fulfilling for me. It's brought me from being a very kind of unhappy, confused, mixed up kid to pretty happy guy. And, and mm. you know, I, I use the, the word happiness sort of uh, tritely, but it's, it's a lot more than that, obviously. It's an honor to be able to, to have conversations with people like you and all the people that I, that I talk to every week. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a real, real joy for me. And mm. it's, it's, it's a joy to be, you know, I, I sometimes have the thought that in, in our own ways, each of us is, is kind of a tool of the divine. Mm. I, I like mm. to think of it that way. You know, that, yeah. you know that beautiful prayer by St. Francis, um, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And it goes on to, you know, where there is, you know, sadness, let me sow, sow happiness or whatever, however the poem goes. And I've kind of always wanted to embody that sentiment ever since I was a teenager, just to sort of make my life be mm. kind of a contribution to the world as much as 
I, yeah. could, I could make it. You know what I mean? I bet you, you feel yeah. that way too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that uh, we're all doing our little bit. There's there is a phenomenon of. Uh, the wisdom of the East coming to the West, and there's so much to be done. All of the little bits and pieces, and uh, you're doing what you're doing, and it's not a matter of who's doing it. Am I doing the right thing? But we're all doing our bit. Yeah. And and we're all, I feel, sort of a product of the ages, our ages, a product of who we are. And uh, if I wasn't doing this, someone would be doing effectively the same thing. It's not personal. We're all doing the bit whatever's assigned to us and doing that as best we can. Karma-karma, uh, desireless action, without uh, getting focused on the, on the results of uh, our work. There's a cool story in one of the Vedic scriptures, I think it might be the Srimad Bhagavatam, where Indra became jealous of, of Krishna because Krishna had all these devotees mm. in Vrindavan who loved him so much and Indra felt like, oh, you know, what, who's he? I mean, you know, what about me? <laughs> and so he started to pour down all this rain on the village and just it was inundating the village and mm. everybody was going to drown. And so all the, all the devotees of Krishna prayed to him to save them and he just took this mountain and lifted it up and held it, held it above the, the village as an umbrella, you know, with one hand. And then after a while the villagers thought, well, that's a very heavy mountain, you know, we better, we better help him. So they all grabbed sticks and, and held them up to sort of hold the mountain up so it wouldn't strain Krishna's wrist or something. Mm. And they all felt like they were doing something. But of course, it was Krishna doing it, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah, them. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. you, you know, you and I and, and all of us were just kind of holding up our sticks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Great. So, is there anything else? Uh, I'm sure there. I mean, usually after I hang up from these interviews, I think, oh, I wish I'd asked that. Is there? Is there anything that you know you feel like you want to throw in there before we wrap it up? No. I just. I just appreciation. That's the word. Appreciation for uh, everyone who's uh, holding up the stick. Everyone who's, uh, yeah, helping in this uh, profound movement that's, yeah, uh, yeah that really uh, will be, already is, important part of human history and appreciating, yeah, all of it, how when we began it wasn't quite as easy to uh, make the connections and uh, it was often, yeah, a bit of a struggle. So there's already been an amazing contribution over 40 years, so acknowledging everyone and acknowledging how it moves forward from here and how it's through your work and so on, really diffusing uh, much more widely into the population. And so if, some, if people want to plug in more to what you're doing, participate in, in some way mm. with what you're offering, um, what is there they can do? Yes, to a website, I guess the easiest website to remember, which will take them to three or four websites that we have, is wisdom.org, is the easiest one to remember, wisdom.org. Okay, and I'll be linking to that, of course, from, from your page on batgap.com. So wisdom.org, and then what kind of things would they find if they, I mean, you're in Australia. I, I, and I, yeah, I think the audios that Sounds True produced people really enjoy them. I have people, you know, that I meet and say, wow, I've been listening to your audios for a year. And I go, what? I mean, that's, <laughs> how do you do that? You yeah. know, that's fantastic. And, you know, they, they say it's they've, everything from it. They've helped me sleep. They've helped me drink less. They've, 
you know, really helped me on my path. So I thought it's all non-dual, but it, it seems to have uh, something more in it than just a non-dual. So I would say the audio, and then there are conference calls that a lot of them come out of Portland that people can connect to. So if they email yeswisdom.org, I will get them onto Portland calls. I do video calls. Not, I'm not sure when I'll be back in the US. I also do an advanced program, Natural Awakening, mm -hmm. uh, which is teaching people how to do the type of non-dual transmission that I do. That's what I've put a lot of work into in recent years. More teaching teachers, teaching facilitators. Is all this stuff done in person, like in, uh, or or you do it remotely? It's based on three workshops. It, that particular course runs over ten months. Mm -hmm. Three four-day workshops, and then a lot of other components. What we call a non-dual coaching lab. Yeah, designed by my wife. So that's like a intense process that we do in person and by phone, small groups, conference calls, projects that people work on. Okay, so it sounds like people can go to your website and explore all the possibilities. Some yeah. of it, some of it may involve flying to Australia or something, but others is, uh, yeah. is going to be over yeah. the phone or, or Skype or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. And you come to the states once in a while too, don't yeah. you? Or yeah. Europe. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. I should mention that there's a page on BatGap under the past interviews um, section which it has like geographic locations or something and you'll be adding information there but if you type in a location such as London you'll automatically see a list of the teachers who are going to be doing something in London or who come there regularly and then you can go to their websites to get the details and what they might be doing so we'll have, have you put in your information on that. All right well thanks Peter. Really appreciate spending some time with you. Yeah. We'll probably run into each other in person one of these days. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, yeah I look forward to that. That would be wonderful. Let me make just a couple of general wrap-up points. So I've been speaking with Peter Fenner, uh, and I think you must know that by now. This uh, interview has been one in an ongoing series, and we have them planned well into the future. I hope to continue doing this for many years. So I love doing it, and it seems to be beneficial for people. If you want to explore the um, archives of ones that have been done, go to batgap.com, look under the past interviews menu, and you'll see them organized in four or five different ways. And then there's also a future interviews menu, which shows what's upcoming. And um, there's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they can to help support this. Uh, there's a place to sign up for email notification of each new interview. There's an audio podcast and a link, uh, a page dedicated to various ways to sign up for that and a bunch of other stuff if you explore the menu. So there's even like a ringtone for your cell phone if you want to download it. Um, <laughs> next week it's going to be um, Bonnie Greenwell who has written a couple of books about um, Kundalini and uh, has been through a whole lot of experiences herself and then made that her life's focus to understand Kundalini and and you know, has interviewed thousands of people who have had all kinds of Kundalini awakenings. So that should be interesting because I, I get emails from people saying, "What is happening to me? You know, I, I, I can't, I can't sleep. My legs are thrashing. I feel like I'm having seizures or something." But I know it's not that. And so um, this is something that probably one should have in one's collection of understanding in case one encounters it. And it's an interesting topic. So that's what we'll do next week. So thanks for listening or watching. Thanks again, Peter. 
Pleasure. And, yeah, it's a pleasure. And um, we'll see you all next week. Okay. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.